what I have been talking about this morning and what I wanted to continue and will continue this evening concerns the fact that all of us have five hindrances. The day before I was talking about our four friends. Our four friends are our purified emotions. But we also have the opposite. We have five hindrances and they are like enemies to us. And if we don't know their names nor what they look like, but let them wander into our inner household at random and let them make a mess of it, we constantly have to uh, deal with this difficulty. So first of all, we need to know their names and what they look like or what they feel like, I should say, in this case. And then we will also need to know how to deal with them. There are, of course, our daily actions that can deal with these difficulties, with our hindrances. But the meditative procedure has a natural inbuilt automatic purification system. And if the meditative procedure becomes successful, namely, that means concentrated, we have an inbuilt counteraction against these hindrances. Now that doesn't mean that we can't, must not also reinforce that through our daily actions. But just because of wanting to get rid of anything that is negative in us and also trying very hard to defeat these negativities, it is not quite enough because it can become a battlefield. Whereas through the meditation, it is automatic and it already gives us so much head, head start that the rest is so much easier. As counteraction against the five hindrances, we have five factors of meditative absorption. Now, we need to know that the meditation subject, in this case the breath, is nothing but a key. It's not the meditation. No method, whether it's breath, mantra, um, sensation, walking, it doesn't matter what it is. None of it is the meditation. All of it is the method. And the method is a method by any name. And actually most methods are accomplishing both calm and insight. Some only accomplish calm and some only insight. Mantra as practiced with TM is strictly geared towards calm. And calm is the means and insight is the goal. The purpose of meditation is insight. But because that needs a pure mind and because it needs a calm mind and it needs a mind which does not flinch from insights which are totally opposed to what we have believed until now 
to be the way things are, we have to have a foundation in peacefulness and calm through meditation in order to be able to not only see an absolute reality but accept it. So in answer to the question which was put a moment ago, what is the purpose of it all? Insight. Insight, which can also be called wisdom, which in Pali is vipassana, is insight. But it goes through calm, samatha or samadhi. But it has to be kept in mind (coughs) that one is the means and one is the goal. But the means is absolutely essential. And when we have a method, it's just a method. It's a key which we need to keep in hand long enough and without wavering so that we can eventually fit it into the keyhole. And once having fitted it into the keyhole and unlocked the door, obviously the key is no longer necessary. In the beginning, of course, when one isn't very experienced, the door slams shut all the time. One has to use the key again. But later, when one has become experienced, there's no reason to use the key again. The door stays wide open. The door is the concentration. And one walks into a house of eight rooms. These eight rooms are the eight stages of meditative absorption. And the five factors I'm talking about are have been talking about and will explain that counteract our five hindrances are the five factors of the very first absorption. So you can see there's quite a bit to meditation that can be done and that has a great deal of breadth and width and uh, depth to it. But once having opened the door and stepped inside the entry hall where these five Um, factors are available to us, one should imagine that it's not very difficult to see the rest of the house. However, it takes continued application. So whichever meditation subject we're using, it doesn't matter. The only thing that matters is that we're going to get concentrated on it. So I will briefly again outline the first three factors which I've already talked about this morning and then say to talk about the other two which I haven't been mentioned yet. The first factor that applies to us in meditation is called initial application. That means sitting down and putting the mind in, let's say, the breath eh, as our meditation subject. That's the initial application. Now that counteracts the third hindrance. The third hindrance is sloth and torpor. Sloth and torpor has two aspects to it. One is, I'll meditate tomorrow. That's one thing. And the other one is, after having had one moment of initial application, the mind getting drowsy and not paying attention any longer. But it also has the aspect of being slothful in one's daily life. The Buddha compared sloth and torpor with being in prison. Being in prison and having to wait till somebody unlocks the door before we can do anything. 
losses in the body, torpors in the mind. Since mind is in charge of the body, it it behooves the mind to become awake and aware, which means initial application over and over and over. That's why when the mind strays to any sort of thought, again apply it to the meditation subject. Because the initial application, if it's only done once, will not <coughs> remove the sloth and torpor. The sloth and torpor is something that is our natural inertia. The natural inertia which looks for comfort and tries to take things as easy as possible which is a natural inborn law of gravity which not only applies to the body but to the mind. So with that lack of energy, naturally we can't do anything. And that's why we have to do this initial application again and again. Now, not only in one sitting when we haven't got the concentration yet, but every day. When the meditation is not successful yet, the concentration hasn't come yet, it takes a bit of overcoming of our instinctive lack of energy and our instinct for comfortable and pleasant feelings, not to interrupt them through any kind of effort. But for that, we also need to know and learn, and this is one of the counter actions that the Buddha recommended for sloth and torpor, to learn more about the Dhamma, the teaching. Because one of the factors on the Noble Eightfold Path is right effort, which means that we really know what's right for us to do, what is most beneficial. How can we make the right kind of effort which will bring the right kind of benefits, balanced effort? So if we want to meditate successfully, there's another aspect which we should take into consideration that meditation is never of the greatest benefit if we use it as a discipline on its own. It needs to be embedded in a spiritual path so that the rest of the teaching reinforces this activity which we have to incorporate into our daily lives the same way that we quite habitually clean our teeth. But it has to have that underlying support system of a whole pathway of spirituality which helps us then to see not just this one aspect of meditation but the whole of the picture where we're going. 
And that's why taking meditation out of context, while it gives one a little less stress and strain, and relieve some of the tensions in shoulders and back, I would say, and some of the tensions maybe in the head too, it does not provide a spiritual path. And it's too easily let go, because we don't have the whole of it. We have only one part of it. As if we were, went to university and instead of taking a whole course, some course that brings us to a degree, we're taking one path of one subject. And naturally, since it doesn't seem to have anywhere to go with that, we can't do anything with it, it's easily let go. The um, Sloth and Torpor applies to meditation as well as to our daily life, and initial application applies to meditation and to daily life. If we want to build a house, it doesn't help us if we have one go at it, we'll have bricks lying all over the place but never get a house. We have to go over and over again and keep on building. So we have to finish what we started by doing it again and again. The next factor of meditation is the one that leads to the meditative absorption, which comes to the point of being able to put the key in the keyhole. Sustained application which means to be able to stay on the meditation subject. To keep the mind on the subject without diversion. Now that makes then the difference between trying and doing. We can actually keep the mind on the subject, on the meditation subject. We have come to a point where we have the opportunity to enter into real meditation. <coughs> it counteracts skeptical doubt. Skeptical doubt is a fifth hindrance. One of the most damaging qualities that we don't necessarily have to have. Unfortunately, greed and hate, which I'll come later, are part of our psyche. But skeptical doubt is not totally necessary, although it only completely vanishes <coughs> at a later stage in our meditation practice, in our insight practice. If it is very strong, it prevents any growth. Skeptical doubt is not inquiry. Skeptical doubt is the inability to give oneself fully to anything or anyone. It is the lack of wholehearted commitment. If we don't have wholehearted commitment, half-hearted, quarter-hearted, whatever size-hearted we can manage, that's the kind of results we'll have. 
skeptical doubt, people who have that skeptical doubt usually have practically no commitment. They like to keep, keep them to themselves. They are unwilling to give themselves. It goes together hand in hand with an inability to love because love is also a wholehearted commitment. And if we have skeptical doubt, for instance, in a relationship with another person, maybe we got married and every morning we wake up and think, oh, I should have found somebody better, or um, maybe I should look around, you know. I mean, the relationship is doomed from the beginning. Well, the same is with a spiritual path. There is no closer relationship that we can enter into than our own spiritual development. And if we doubt, first of all, our own ability to do it, secondly, the truth of that, what we are ta taught, and the truth of the, um, the, the words that may lead us somewhere, if we doubt them without even inquiring, then there's no way that we can actually go on that path. Every day we might think, well, yes, that's all right, but they must have something easier. Or why did they say that? They could have said something like that. It's just hopeless. There's no way we can actually start to practice. The Buddha insists on inquiry. He insists on the, on the fact that one should not have blind belief, but enough confidence to try. Now, if we have tried meditation to the point where this sustained application is possible, skeptical doubt in two aspects vanishes, namely that oneself can do it, one's just done it, no doubt, and that at least that much of what the Buddha said is already true, and an inkling arises that maybe the rest might be true too, and one has enough confidence to keep on going. So that little bit of ability which doesn't take all that much to really stay on the meditation subject opens up the pathway and one doesn't have to constantly shift around in one's mind and try to find fault skeptical doubt is probably the worst of it is that one tries to find something wrong and you know, the mind is so devious, it can find something wrong in the holiest of holies. We can manage anything with the mind. So to find something wrong where there isn't anything wrong is one of the um, sort of hobbies of someone with skeptical doubt. But the right way is honest, sincere inquiry. So this one aspect of sustained application brings with it uh, this, what I said was being able to keep, put the key in the keyhole to open the door to proper meditation. Up to then, it's been trying. Trying to keep the mind on the meditation subject is trying, and without it, nothing happens. Having done gone that far, the next step is called in Pali, PT, P-I-T-I. 
not the English pity, pity. And it is mostly translated as either rapture or bliss, but neither word uh, gives an indication of what it is. If we say pleasant feeling, it comes nearer to the truth. Pleasant feeling, which is physically generated, but does not have really anything to do with the body, but it's still a physical sensation. Seventeen different kinds are listed in the Visuddhimagga, um, in the path of purification, but there are more than that. I'm sure I've heard already 30 different kinds. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what kind it is. It is unusually pleasant feeling. It can be mild, it can be strong. It can be lifting, it can be floating, it can be tingling, it can be anything. It doesn't really matter. It has to be strong enough to give the mind pause to, to, to when it happens the first time, to probably say, hmm, what's that? Of course, that finishes that particular meditation session. We've got to start again. Then starting again, hopefully the mind's not going to say again, oh, what is that? But fall into it and use it as a meditation subject. That is the entry hall of the absorption. Now this particular one counteracts one of our worst hindrances. It's called ill will. It includes hate, anger, resistance, rejection, dislike, envy, jealousy, fear. All of that is included. Included in the overhead uh, topic of ill will. The reason it does that is because when one has this very pleasant feeling at the time one's having it, it's impossible to be angry or resisting or disliking. I mean, how can one dislike something like that? But that is not all of it. It has a residue. It has a residue of, first of all, knowing that one can get back to that when one sits again in meditation. So that all the unpleasantnesses that we have in daily life are not quite as much of a sting as they used to be. What we can compare it with is like having a home to go to and recuperate. If we go to, the, to work and we wouldn't have a home to go back to at night, we would have to sleep in the street, would be very uncomfortable for the body, would be exposed to all the elements, and uh, we wouldn't feel very good about it. We always make sure we have a roof over our head, we have a bed, we have a pleasant chair to sit in. We have it warm in winter and cold in summer. We can close the windows against the flies and all the rest of that. We do all that. We get home, we sit in the most comfortable armchair. But is the mind all that comfortable? 
the mind without having been able to get to a point of these feelings in meditative absorption is still concerned with either the problems of the day or all the other things that happen in the evening or trying to drown out that through pleasant sense contact. The mind that doesn't know anything else except either sense contact through seeing, hearing, tasting, touching, smelling and thinking or the mind that goes around around on problems and future plans and past hopes and regrets doesn't have a home to go to. It's quite glad actually to fall asleep because at least we're not so conscious then of what's going on. But the mind that is able to do the meditative absorptions at will, anytime, has a home where it can rest, where it doesn't have to think, where it can experience, where it can experience pleasantness, just like sitting in that nice armchair for the body. So now finally the mind's got an armchair too. It's just about the first thing that we could provide for the mind. Without The mind is our most important asset. It's actually that asset which makes everything happen. And yet we provide very little for it usually. We provide everything for the body. So now we have finally come to the point where we have at least provided a very comfortable armchair. And knowing that we have done this makes, of course, the everyday activity far less bothersome and any kind of unpleasantness which arises doesn't have the same Im impact on us. But it's not only that. When we are able to do this in meditation with any kind of um, skill, we can usually make that arise also outside of meditation. So that the pleasant feeling to a far lesser degree, but still to some degree, not so strong. So that this pleasant feeling gives us a sort of um, um, like a um, protection where all the vicissitudes which happen to everybody are not really felt so strongly. So ill will is no longer the problem which it is in so many people's lives and it becomes much easier to generate loving-kindness, which I explained yesterday. It becomes so much easier that the difference is quite remarkable. Ill-will is compared by the Buddha to a bilious disease and he also compared it to picking up hot coals with one's bare hands and trying to throw them at somebody else. No matter how good our aim, the one who picks the hot coals up first is the one that gets burned. We have here an automatic laundering process for our emotions. And if we don't take advantage of this, 
then we will find it difficult, always difficult, to change from the negative to the positive. It's a chore, it's a struggle. Naturally, we all have good intentions, but with this automatic laundering process, it's a difference between a washing machine and hand washing. One you press a button and the other one you got to stand there and scrub. It's exactly the same difference. Now having done, gone this far and come this far, we, we have of course some other benefits also, not only these. Another benefit is that we can see quite clearly that what we have experienced in meditation is a feeling which has not been available to us outside of meditation. It has not been available to us through our sense contacts, neither through seeing, hearing, tasting, touching, smelling or thinking. And that gives us pause to realize that that what the world offers is not as glittering as we thought it was. It's too momentary and not fulfilling. That all what we really need for our happiness, all what we really need for harmony is to get inside ourselves to the purified state of mind. Because at the time when these states arise, the mind is completely pure. This is a momentary state. However, even a momentary pure state done over and over again amounts to an enormous amount of purification. And the temptations of the world are no longer as strong as they were. That doesn't mean we don't enjoy pleasant sense contact. But what we lose is the expectation that they will give us the completeness of happiness <coughs> that we thought they would do until then. And the reason that we were constantly looking for another and a better one was because this way it's going to happen. Now we know there's something else. And when we know that there's something else and have been, have understood that it has come through that purified state of mind which was momentary but had nothing to do with any sense contact. On the contrary, we have to be completely removed from sense contact in order to experience it. We will then go further inside. Now I have said that this is a means and not the goal. The goal is inside and therefore it's absolutely essential that if, these states are, if this state arises, and this is the very first one of the whole, um, of, the whole of the meditative absorptions which has any um, real impact, when that subsides it is essential that we see its impermanence. That too is impermanent. Unless we see that 
we haven't used the second part of the meditative procedure. Meditative procedure has two legs to stand on, calm and insight, samatha and vipassana. And calm is the first, the first experience of calm is the pleasant feeling, which can be anything from rising up, where people sometimes think that they have to look to see whether they're still sitting. It can be anything with the um, uh, a, a sensation of the hair standing on edge, anything at all. But whatever it is, when it ceases, the most pleasant feeling, it is impermanent. We have to make sure that this comes to our notice because otherwise we will get the idea that this is what we're meditating for. We're meditating for pleasant feelings, even though it's absurd. But it is so much better than anything we've ever had before that this mistake is easily made without proper teaching. So the understanding has to be there. It has to have the understood experience. The experience is feeling, is a matter of the heart. The understanding is knowing, a matter of the mind. Unless we use heart and mind together, we're standing on one leg. And since that's very uncomfortable and cannot lead us anywhere, it shows right from the start that this cannot be sufficient. We have to have both legs on the ground, both feet on the ground. So the impermanence of the experience brings us inside repeatedly seen into the impermanence of all phenomena of which we are part. The deeper we go into our insight path, the more we will see what there really is, the absolute reality. What I'm explaining right now is the path of calm, how it counteracts our hindrances. But what I will be explaining tomorrow will be the path of insight, which is so greatly underwritten through the path of calm. Insight on its own, just bare insight, is very difficult and can be frustrating. Also, not only difficult and frustrating, but all these sense contacts, which are so easily made for us in the West, I mean, we can buy anything, what, for what, so it costs a little more, it doesn't really matter. They need a substitute. We've got to have something better. Otherwise, why should we ever find out that they are worthless, that they are fool's gold, they glitter, but they have no real value in them? We will never believe it unless there's something else to take their place. Now these are the first three of the factors of the meditative absorption which counteract three of our hindrances. The fourth factor of meditative absorption is happiness. Happiness is a direct result of this pleasant feeling. It's totally impossible to be unhappy about it. Nobody can manage that. A very pleasant feeling brings happiness.
and this happiness counteracts restlessness and worry which is our fourth hindrance now restlessness and worry are worry is of course about the future because we don't know quite whether it's going to be any better than what the present is and it could be worse and not only that but the present isn't totally satisfactory so we worry about the future but when there is complete happiness it's impossible to worry and restlessness is looking for greener pastures there must be something better on the other side of the fence you know the grass is always greener on the other side of the fence and that's why all the jet planes are totally full tourist tourism is the biggest business in most countries because it promises greener pastures it promises but it doesn't keep their promise we got to keep going there again and again so restlessness is not only that it's also changing from here to there trying to do something different trying to know but know somebody different trying to learn something different something new something else because what one has and knows and can do is not satisfactory all that is of course completely counteracted with happiness the minute happiness has arisen why be restless there's nothing else to get that doesn't mean we can't go on holiday but we no longer believe that that is going to be the solution to every problem the solution to unhappiness does not lie, lie in going on a holiday the solution to unhappiness which is a feeling inside lies in happiness which is also a feeling inside and of course this feeling that arises simultaneously with the pleasant feeling arises at the same time as the um, pleasant feeling which is a sensation it's also impermanent and when the meditation is finished then we must again see its impermanence or when the concentration is finished i should say we could again see its impermanence but again it keeps leaves a residue it leaves a residue of knowing that we can get back to it it leaves a residue of self confidence there's something i can have which is totally happy and it's completely independent of what everybody else is saying doing selling buying it doesn't matter total independence and if we ever want freedom we've got to be independent now freedom is spiritual emancipation it's not physical freedom but we've got to be independent so we are no longer dependent upon that which is outside of us we no longer depend on getting what we want or not getting what we don't want we no longer depend on other people's approval on their praise on their love on their appreciation it's very nice to get it but we're not dependent on it for our happiness we've got happiness through meditation now that 
independence is invaluable because it removes some of our fears. The fears of inadequacy, the fears of not being loved, not being appreciated. Not all fears, but some fears are removed. One can stand alone and still have that what everybody wants, happiness. Restlessness and worry is compared by the Buddha to being a slave. When we have that, we're being pushed around by them. We don't have self-determination. We have not action but reaction. And being pushed around by those two makes us their slave. So no freedom in it. He gave us an antidote for them, not only this meditative procedure, but also the companionship of wise and mature people and again learning more about the teaching as a whole embedding of a practice. He also gave a, a common antidote to all of the five hindrances, namely noble friends and noble conversation, the right kind of people and the right kind of input into the mind, the kind of words which are helpful, uplifting for spiritual growth, for wisdom and for harmony. That antidote is the same for all five hindrances. The others have not only different factors of the meditative absorption, but also, of course, different factors in our daily application. So, when this happiness has arisen, then we can actually, in order to further the meditation, and I will tell you the next step, because maybe somebody will get to it, and I won't be here to explain it. Let go of the pleasant feeling and put full attention on the emotional feeling of happiness. Letting go of the pleasant feeling means letting go of the initial physically generated sensation, which is more gross than the emotional feeling. Now, anyone who ever thinks about meditation will know that we don't come to meditation just to get pleasant feelings. We might have the mistaken view that we got to it because we get happy, but if we get a little more understanding of the teaching, we realize that that too is not the goal, it's only a means. So at this point, we, are, we can learn to let go of this pleasant sensation and have the focus only on the happiness, which is at least a little more subtle than the physically generated sensations. The fifth, fifth factor of the meditative absorptions is 
one-pointedness. It's impossible to have any absorption without one-pointedness. And that counteracts the desire for sensual gratification. Now, when we're not concentrated yet, and we sit in an uncomfortable position, we certainly would like to become comfortable. We have the desire to be comfortable. When we sit in meditation and we're not concentrated and we're hungry, we want to eat. If it's too hot, we want to turn the fan on. If it's too cold, we want to turn the heater on. Um, if, we, if we sit in meditation and we hear some sounds, we'd like to listen to them because we're already getting bored. So as long as we're not concentrated, the senses are looking out to have the, the mind is looking out for the senses to have pleasant contact. If we're one-pointed, which means completely concentrated, which is part of this, then the sense contact is no longer wanted. And so our desire for sensual gratification is removed completely at this time. And again, we gain that insight that without that sense contact, we have gained far more happiness than with any sense contact. And for the first time, we will see what we've been doing all these years, trying to get happiness through the senses and never getting it. We get pleasure, but not happiness. The desire for sensual gratification can be uh, called less politely greed and uh, ill will less politely hate and greed and hate are our two major um, problems the problems of the human race and they are based on our wrong view of ourselves while we have that wrong view of ourselves we need to purify again and again in order to minimize we won't be able to eliminate them until we have right view. But at least we can minimize them. Well, here we again, we have an automatic procedure. The one-pointedness, which is connected with the happiness, shows us quite clearly that all these sense contacts which are available to us and which we are constantly having and searching for, the pleasant ones, are never giving us what we want them to do and therefore we don't really have to run after them so much. Our whole economy is based upon pleasant sense contact. Well, it doesn't mean that we can never buy anything again, but it means that we're not, not going to ever think again that that is going to be happiness. We won't even ever consider such a thing. It may be necessity, but it's certainly not happiness. So we have a, a strong um, antidote. The desire for sensual gratification is uh, compared by the Buddha to being in debt. If you have a mortgage on your house at the bank, you've got to go every month and give them the money with interest. And uh, if you're lucky, it will be paid off one day. The desire for sensual gratification won't get paid off until we let go of it. We have to renew the sensual gratification again and again and again. So the um, comparison shows us that it's a um, dead end 
Whereas here, we have the easy way out. The one-pointedness, of course, has also the, the benefit that we have or now become at least somewhat in charge of the mind. We can actually keep it where we want it to be. And with that, we don't have to run after and react to every thought that comes into our mind during the day. The one point is it makes it possible to put our mind where we want it to be. Now these are only the five factors of the very first meditative absorption and there are eight of those, eight meditative absorptions. And progressively these factors become less less and less because the mind becomes more and more one-pointed so there are less and less factors involved but already these first uh, this first meditative absorption has so enormous benefits that if we use it properly it will change our life our standpoint our viewpoint to one which is spiritually orientated it's the orientation it's which we were looking which matters. The spiritual orientation should never be a struggle or a chore if it isn't happiness. Who wants it? Only if it's happiness it has that appeal. If we do this we must never forget to see the impermanence of fleeting nature of even that which we would so much like to keep. And that will give us a little more insight into the fleeting nature of this person and all other persons we would so much like to keep. I think this is enough for this evening. And maybe if you'd like to ask some questions about this or anything else, and maybe those people who asked questions earlier, if there's still some doubt left in their mind about what they asked, they can ask again if they like. Has this answered your question a little more? you didn't have the whole context of what you were doing. You see, you had one part of it. Not enough to keep going. Yeah. Now it's an old story. <laughs> and you may have, or not have, I don't know, had a first appearance of pleasant feeling. Try again. Hmm? I'd like to think so. Yes, I like to think so too. <laughs> See if it happens again. But don't look for it. Okay? Not, to, oh, where's this feeling? Now that was so nice. What was it? Maybe I should do this now. Then it comes. <laughs> <laughs> Not like that. Okay? Just a sustained application. Just staying with the meditation subject.
Were you doing quite well with that at the time? <coughs> okay, that's it. That's the answer to it, okay? <laughs> but the thought, I like to keep it a bit longer, stopped it. Yeah, you've got to, what you need to do is to just be with the feeling. Just be with it. Not say, oh, I'd like to keep this, because that's a thought. Then it's finished, huh? And also not thinking, I'd like to get it. Okay? Just stay with them. Hmm? Yeah, it's quite Yeah, sure, of course. But next time you're already prepared and then you can stay with it. And uh, all you have to do is just stay with the breath. Huh? Okay, any questions? One, two, three. There was somebody else that had something before. Yes. You know something now what, I, what you were asking? Not really. No? Don't know the purpose of meditation? Well, you say it was inside, but uh, again, you, when, you, when you die, everything dies, so what's the point of it? It's just a short time. Sorry? What's the point of... What was what's the, the point of inside? It's supposed to be better when you are 60, you die at 65, so... Yeah. It's gold when you die, isn't it? Yeah, well, I'm already 66, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly, but uh, you see, from now till the time you die, um, what are you going to do then in that time? Yeah, the survival program that where there's a soul or something. So if you do good things, you might be in heaven. If you do bad things, you might go to hell. Ah, heaven and hell, yes. Well, you see, heaven and hell. Mm. Heaven and hell you can experience right here and now. Any moment. Let's try. Try, try it. Try and see if you can. And then you know what heaven and hell are like. Okay, any, any questions? I have a, my question is a different. Okay. At what stage can we start using PT as a uh, meditation subject? The moment it arises. Then, uh, what would be the process? Uh, the breath is easy to get to it because it's already there. The PT doesn't arise, it doesn't rise constantly. Constantly? What do you mean by constantly? No, it does, it does, it's not attained easily. One has to go through the process of meditation on the breath first. Oh, yes, of course. Yes, yes. initial application, sitting down and putting your mind to it, sustained application, staying on it. And then you derive it in it. Then it arises, yes. Now, for some people, you see, beginner's luck. She has hardly meditated, she tells me. Right? Okay, happens all the time. I had a, I had a girl in a meditation course in, in Germany. She'd never meditated in her life. And uh, she was about 23 or 24. And uh, was totally concentrated and had these uh, factors arise on the third day. I have never seen that before, but I, as I said also this morning, I have I know people that have meditated for 15 years and have never gotten near it. So, you know, three days, 15 years, anything in between. It has to do with one's karma, it has to do with one's past life experiences. It's all conjecture. I know nothing about it. Um, 
you know, what, what people's karma is, what their past life is, I have no idea. Um, and it has to do with the purity of their lives now. But, I mean, I wouldn't have known this girl's going to do it in three days. The chap that did it for 15 years was a monk living in the forest. So, anything, anything is possible. So all we have to do is just keep at it. And one of the things which I have found quite um, consistent is that when people's attention is brought on it, as I have put your attention on it now, and explained what it is and what it's for, people become more aware of it. They do, do find that it is, for many people, easier to connect to it. And that's all I can say. But practice is necessary, yes. Did you think we could get away without so much practice? No. <laughs> but some people can, apparently. <laughs> any, any questions? Now, if it should arise, don't forget impermanence. And one other thing, which I have already explained, but I'll explain it again because quite a few of you weren't here. That if you have this kind of experience or any other good experience in meditation, before you open your eyes, the first thing is the impermanence of the pleasant feeling, if there was one. But the second thing is recapitulation. What did I do this time to get to this pleasant state or to this good concentration? What did I do differently? How did I sit differently, eat differently, think differently, act differently during the day? Anything at all that comes to mind, any little clue, and all these clues, if it's done, you know, again and again, all these clues then finally add up to a completely open pathway where one can always do it. One sits down and doesn't need the key anymore. Don't need that attention on the breath. The door remains open because the pathway has been trodden so often that it's completely smooth. And uh, this is very important, especially when you have a good meditation. When you have a bad meditation, it's also important because you will know what to avoid in the future. I think uh, you asked about eating. Well, yes, that's something that one needs to avoid, uh, eating a lot before meditation. So you know already this is something to avoid. So it it's a recapitulation after meditation and then impermanence. That's all right, too, after bad meditation. I mean bad, it's just a way of speaking. There aren't any good or bad ones. Meditation is just being aware. Huh? But these are some of the results that can happen. Anything else? Anybody have any personal experiences that they want to know about, what to do with them? I won't be back so soon in Canberra. Yes, so. Um, it happened for a while, but when I first started in the it seems 
always stretch it up, see it, and it seems quite common when software treatment will be maintaining it. I'm just wondering what it is and how to deal with it. Um, when the board is just the board is stretching, mm. so the ceiling goes down back onto the air. Is it unpleasant? Pleasant. Mm. Well, actually, if the body's uh, contours uh, have all of a sudden changed to, some people think they're like a balloon, some think people think they're very like a giant, like a um, pinpoint. These are all just um, aberration of perception because of the mind trying to do something it isn't used to. You know, it's, uh, it's, it's not meaningful at all. If you like, you can open your eyes and start all over again, if it's bothering. And it's certainly not something to put your attention on, if the body has all of a sudden stretched, you know. It's better, if you can't get back to the breath because it's interesting, well, open your eyes and it will immediately disappear. It's not, it's not an important, uh, it's not a meditation subject. It's, it can be interesting. You know, oh, what's happening now? <laughs> Please put the attention on the breath for just a moment. Think of the person whom you love most of all people that you know. Become fully aware of the feeling that you have for that one person. And now transfer that same feeling to yourself. No difference, no separation. The love we feel for one, we can feel for all. Let that same feeling fill you and surround you. Now let that same feeling that you have for that one beloved person reach out to everyone here. Try to feel exactly the same as you do for that one person. Reach out with that feeling and fill and embrace everyone here with that same feeling of love.
Now think of those people who are nearest and dearest to you. And again, have that same feeling of love that you have for the one beloved person, for all the people who are near and dear to you. Fill them with that love. Embrace them with that love. Now think of your friends and again recognize the feeling that you have for the one beloved person and transfer to all your friends. No difference, no separation. Just the quality of love from your heart. Think of your neighbors, the people at work, people you see here and there. And again, be aware of the love you have for that one beloved person and transfer it to all these people. Opening up your heart, generating more and more love giving out, filling all these people with love and embracing them, making no distinction.
think of all the people who live in your hometown those you know and those you don't know recognize again the feeling of love you have for your one beloved person and reach out to all these people in your hometown with that same feeling of love making all equal realizing the totality of our humanity Put your attention back on yourself. Again, become aware of the feeling you have for your one most beloved person and then let that same feeling reach out to yourself, filling and drenching you with that feeling of love surrounding you with it. Being totally at ease and at one with yourself. Male beings have love in their heart. 